Notice with me Genesis chapter 28 and verse 15. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Today I want to tell you that our God is a God of recovery. He is a rescuer who delights in delivering his people from... He can help you regain what has been lost and restore you to the place where you belong. If you will look to him in the time of need, if you will trust him and follow his leading, you can overcome illness, bounce back from disappointment. You can endure hardship and adversity, and you can advance to new levels of grace. Amen? The Bible tells me, for example, in the book of 2 Kings chapter 20 and verse 1, the king of Judah became sick and was at the point of death. And then the prophet Isaiah declared to him, Thus says the Lord, Set your house in order, for you shall die. You shall not recover. You know, for Hezekiah, obviously this must have seemed a completely hopeless situation. Not only was his illness serious, he was on the verge of death. And instead of receiving a word of encouragement, the prophet, you will not recover. Your fate is sealed. You're going to die. Set your house in order. You know, that means write your will. Say farewell to family and friends. Let them come and measure you for the casket. It's all over. And this fatal pronouncement was not made by just some random passerby or just some person from a questionable background. This was Isaiah. Isaiah. I mean, if there was ever a prophet of God, if there was ever someone who heard from God and spoke, it was Isaiah. At this point, Hezekiah, like many people, could have just pulled the blanket over his head and waited to breathe out his last breath. But instead, the Bible says in verse 2, 2 Kings chapter 20, verse 2, he turned his face to the wall and prayed. He turned his face to the wall and prayed. No, he wasn't praying to the wall. He was turning away from all distractions. We do in a distracted world, don't we? And notice he didn't even request others to pray for him. He didn't call for his relatives and all the courtiers to pray for him. He knew at this moment of crisis, he himself had to get alone with God. Don't always depend on other people to do your praying for you. Hallelujah. And basically, in so many words, he said, Lord, you know I have tried to live a life 
that pleases you. It wasn't a long prayer. It's rather brief. It's just one verse in this particular um, chapter. But less words or heart is always better than more words with less heart. Amen. And verse 3 says, and he wept bitterly. Now, tears alone don't make our prayers effective. But this does demonstrate his earnestness, his sincerity. He didn't recite a few religious phrases by rote, just muttering some, echoing some words he had heard somewhere before, unfeeling, insincere. This came from somewhere deep inside. You know, God's not impressed with your theological knowledge. He is impressed with the heart that's true. And while Isaiah was still inside the palace gates, actually headed for the exit, God stopped him. He hasn't even left the building yet. God stopped him and turned him around and said in verse 5, Tell Hezekiah, I have heard your prayer. I've seen your tears. Behold, I will heal you. Come on. It looks like there's absolutely no hope. Even God says you're going to die. But even that can be changed. If you will just turn your face to the wall and cry out to him. As Hezekiah recovered and the Lord added to him 15 more years. He is a God of recovery. Can I get a witness here today? I said he's a God of recovery. There are numerous examples, numerous examples in scripture where the Lord turned the captivity of those who had fallen into calamity and misfortune. And he will do the same to you. Amen. Because there was a famine in Israel, a man named Elimelech and his wife Naomi, they moved to the land of Moab along with their two sons. And sometime after that, Elimelech died. His sons and wife settled down and the two boys married Moabite women. But 10 years later, they also passed away, leaving Naomi's daughter-in-laws, Orpah and Ruth. Now, when Naomi heard that the famine was over, she decided to return back to Israel. But on the way, on the way there, she turned and told Orpah and Ruth, go back home. Go on back home. And they initially expressed a strong desire to remain with her. Now, by the way, that tells me something. That tells me that Naomi was a kind and caring mother in love, not monster in law. So, evidently, from India. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. And 
she, she blessed them. She didn't curse them. She blessed them and kissed them goodbye. And Orpah went back to Moab. But Ruth insisted on continuing with Naomi. Naomi said to Ruth, in Ruth chapter 1, verse 15, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. In other words, just follow her example. Do I, I have nothing to offer you myself. But Ruth was adamant. She would not be swayed. In so many words, she said, please don't send me away. I will go where you go. I will live where you live. And here's the real key to all of it in verse 16. Your people shall be my people. And your God, my God. So she not only stayed with her mother-in-law, she stayed with the only true and living God. This that she didn't blame God. She didn't blame Naomi's God for her husband's death. She wasn't filled with resentment and anger. So these two widowed women returned to Bethlehem in Judah, penniless, nothing to their name. When Naomi met her friends, after being gone for over a decade, she said, don't call me Naomi anymore. Naomi means pleasantness or delight. Call me Mara, which means bitterness. You see, Naomi was saying, life has been so unfair to me. That's what a lot of people are saying. Life has been so, I, did, I never imagined this would happen to me. What did I do? To deserve this. And, and actually she said the Lord has done this. She's, she's really pointing the finger at heaven. You see. Now think about this. The Bible does not specifically tell us. Why Elimelech. And his two sons died. Doesn't really tell us. But I think. We have a right to ask this question. Did God. Send Elimelech to live in Moab. What, who directed him to go and settle and live among such godless people. And they were godless people. No. That was just his decision. In fact, hold that thought about Ruth in your mind. I'll come back to that in just a second. But what happened to Elimelech reminds me of another story, another incident in the Bible. In the book of Genesis, we read that there was discord and strife between Abraham and his nephew Lot and between their respective workers. The, both men were so immensely blessed, abundance of cattle and livestock, that the land could not support both of them living together. And so they decided to separate amicably on friendly terms. And Abraham said, if, if you choose this way, then, then what I'll do is I'll go the other way. If you choose that way, then I'll do the opposite. And Abraham graciously allowed the junior member of the partnership, Lot, to choose first. 
And the Bible says Lot looked over the horizon and he saw the well-watered valley of the Jordan. It was lush with vegetation. The Bible says it looked like the Garden of Eden. Lot moved his tent, the Bible says, towards Sodom. Beautiful locale, location. Horrible people. Because the Bible says the men of Sodom were notorious sinners. All men have sinned and broken God's law, but these men were notorious sinners. They were homosexuals and sexual perverts, and he chose to live in their direction, you see. In fact, later, a few chapters later, we see Lot not living near Sodom, living in Sodom. And by the way, the cat are gone, you see. What happened? Lot separated, listen carefully, you got to hear this. Lot made a fatal mistake. He separated himself from the source of blessings. Lot should have said to Abraham what Ruth said to Naomi. I'm not leaving you. God is with you. The covenant of God is on your life. Wherever you go, I'm going to go. Please don't send me away. But see, he, he thought that I'm blessed just because of me. I can do that as he is. But Lot was not Abraham. Lot was not called the friend of God. And so because he separated himself from the source of blessing, you'll see that that blessing began to erode and fade, fade away. When God judged Sodom, Lot had to flee for his life. He lost everything, including his wife. He ended up living, Lot, the one who formerly had vast wealth. He ends up living in a cave with his two daughters. Refugees. And the two Pardon me, but this is what the Bible tells me. The two girls got their father drunk so that they could commit incest with him. And the oldest daughter gave birth to a son through her father and called his name Moab. The father of all the Moabites. See, Lot was basically a good fellow. But he made some crucial decisions which cost him dearly. Are you listening to me? Hallelujah. So back, Ruth said to her mother-in-law, let me try gleaning some barley from some of the local fields because it was, it was harvest time. Now, you need to know this, that according to the law of Moses... The Israelites were to intentionally leave the corners and, and the edges of their fields unreaped. They, they couldn't take all of it. Little parts on the side, you know, you have to leave that untouched for the poor. To allow them to come and gather a little grain for themselves. Now see, Bible does not teach or does not advocate the forced 
redistribution of wealth. God is not a Marxist. But Scripture continually encourages us and admonishes us to be kind, thoughtful, and generous to the poor. And sometimes we fail in that department. Thank you for your enthusiasm. Amen. So it just so happened that Ruth went into one field to glean a little barley, and that field was owned by a man named Boaz, Boaz, who was actually a close relative, deceased father-in-law, Elimelech. And this was no coincidence. This was the providence of God. This was the providence of God. See, the, the lesson is very clear. If you will serve the Lord with a pure heart, he will direct your steps. But of course, if you don't take any steps, he has nothing to direct. Ruth had some initiative. I'm going to go out there and glean some barley. I'm just going to stay home and, and starve to death. Let me do what I can do. And God helped her. Hallelujah. And furthermore, the Bible says Ruth found favor in the eyes of Boaz, even though she's a foreigner. Now see, the Moabites in the past had more than once attacked the people of Israel. They have fought wars against the Moabites. So Boaz has every right to disregard Ruth. This Moabite woman, what is she doing in my field? But you see, even if there is not a natural reason for people to like you or even care about you, the grace of God will bring you into sympathetic cooperation with people of resource and influence. Hallelujah. And you don't have to try to play politics. You don't have to try to, you know, uh, 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 sort of like through carnal methods, win them over to your side. God can work on their heart. God can speak to people. Your job is to serve the Lord. God's job is to let you find favor in the eyes of others. Can I get an amen? amen. Boaz made sure that Ruth was not harassed by the field hands. And he instructed his workers to intentionally leave some extra grain, extra barley for Ruth. And he spoke kindly to her. And he helped her. Let me ask you a question. Elimelech took his wife and children, two sons, moved to Moab. How do you suppose he financed that journey? You see, because of the famine, he evidently was forced to sell his farm. To sell the property. That's, that's the only money he could have, you see. Under the law, again, there was a provision that if a man had sold his inheritance, he could redeem it. That is to say, he could buy it back. However, Elimelech is dead, so he can't do that. So the responsibility falls to the close relative of his, you see. And that was Boaz. For us today, Boaz is a picture of Christ. We, like Ruth, were foreigners, alienated from the covenants of promise and without hope. But thank God, all of us today, I believe all of us today, 
we have found a kinsman redeemer in Jesus. And the scripture says that Ruth went to Boaz at night as he was resting on the threshing floor and she lay down at his feet. Of course, that, that might seem appropriate to us. I'm not suggesting that you do that. But it was a symbol of her submission. Today, Jesus is seated at the Father's right hand, and this is the season of the harvest of souls. And we need to bow at his feet and make him Lord of our lives. And she said to Boaz in Ruth chapter 3, verse 9, spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. She was asking for protection. And he, what he did was he took like the hem of his robe and, and slightly covered her, which again seems rather kind of weird and, 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 and awkward. But it might help you to know that even today in Jewish weddings, a groom at one point in the ceremony wraps his bride with a shawl or like with a cotton or silk cloth. You see, we are in a covenant relationship with Christ. We're not just recipients of his blessings. We're not just casually meeting him from time to time. We're married to him. We're in a covenant relationship. We, the church, we are the bride of Christ. Married Ruth, and they had a son whom the women in the neighborhood evidently, named Obed, which means servant. So what? Obed was the father of Jesse. Jesse was the father of David. And through David came the redeemer of all mankind, the son and servant of God. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. And one little side thought here, it's not so important, but interesting. In 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 12, when David faced Goliath, the scripture points out that he was handsome and he was ruddy in his... That means he had like reddish hair and he was very fair complected. That doesn't sound like the average Jew. I don't know this for a fact, but maybe he got that red hair from his grandmother, Ruth, who wasn't Jewish. She was a Moabite woman. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. God is a God of recovery. He did it for Ruth. He can do it for you. Praise the Lord. Now let's talk about David. Wonderful man of God, a man after God's own heart. But in later life, as an adult, David living like a fugitive, running from a madman, King Saul, who out of jealousy was determined to slay him, had tried several times. But God protected David time and again. But David became discouraged. And understandably so. I mean, you can certainly empathize with him. Who, who could go through all that he went through? David became discouraged. And he said, if I continue like this, eventually Saul will kill me. Wait a minute. What about God's protection? Has God failed? Has God forgotten his promise to you? But David, in his frustration to go and live in the land of the Philistines. 
And when he did that, yes, Saul stopped chasing after him. And he and his men befriended the king of the Philistines, Achish. Achish gave to David and his men the town of Ziklag to live in. And David raided the nearby settlements of the Canaanites. You know, he, he took things and he slew the people there. But he told Achish, the Philistine king, that he was raiding Israel. He wasn't, but he, he told him he was raiding Israel so he kishes favor and he would have confidence in him. In fact, a time came when the Philistines, their army gathered together to fight against Saul. And David and his men joined their ranks. They got in line. They marched with the Philistines, going to go to battle. But once again, I think it's the mercies of God. It's the providence of God. The Philistine leaders objected. Wait a minute. This is David. This is the guy that has slain so many thousands. You know, Saul has slain his thousands. David has tens of thousands. We're not going to go into battle with this guy. He might turn on us. And so Achish, who had become very friendly because he's so happy with David. David's making him rich. Even sinners know when God has blessed you, you know. And uh, Achish begrudgingly requested David, please, can you just uh, withdraw from from, from the attack, from the, from the war. So David and his men went back home to where they were staying, to Ziklag. And there they found it burned to the ground. A smoldering ruins. Because a band of Amalekites had raided the town and taken captive all the people. Everything, everything was gone. Not only their possessions but their wives and children. And the Bible says that in 1 Samuel chapter 30, verse 4, the Bible says that when David and his men saw this, they wept until they had no more tears. Now, folks, these were not a bunch of little snowflakes. These were not little sissy boys. Oh, David, what happened? These are, these are warriors. These are trained killers. These are men who have seen battle. They're hardened fighters. They were so overcome with grief at what happened. And worse than that, they began to blame David. This is your fault. Why did we follow you? Why have you brought us to this place? And the men even began to discuss stoning David to death. You know, when things go wrong, people are looking for someone to blame. Yeah, it's the pastor's fault, I'm sure of that. Let's, let's get rid of him, you know. It, it's, the, it's the elder's fault. Let's, let's get rid of them, you see. The Bible says their souls became bitter. They were having a moment. They were having a Naomi moment, you see. But verse 6 is the key. But David strengthened himself. I'm waiting for the verse on the screen. Please help me now. Verse 6 is the key. But David strengthened himself. Thank you. David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. 
Notice it wasn't say somebody else strengthened him. It says he strengthened himself in the Lord his God. Oh, thank God for people who will pray for you. Thank God for those who will visit you. Thank God for those who will, you know, uh, uh, hold your hand and stand at your... It's going to be a time in your life it's going to be just you and your God. And you're going to have to find your strength in him. The King James Version says he encouraged himself in the Lord. How did he do that? I, I think what he did was he reminded himself of God's goodness in his life. I think he remembered God's faithfulness and his promise. Hallelujah. I think he began to praise God. I think he began to worship the Lord. Listen, if you only worship God on Sunday, you're never going to make it in this life. You've got to carry the praise with you wherever you go. And it's one thing to praise God when all is going well. It's one thing to sing and be joyful when you have money in your pocket and everybody at home well and the skies are blue. But I'm telling you, it's another thing to praise God when it seems you've lost everything, when it seems you don't have a friend in this world, when it seems even your most loyal followers have turned on you. But praise is not just a happy expression of good circumstances. Praise is a I said praise is a weapon to push back the forces of darkness. Hallelujah. Come on, I don't think you're hearing me today. I said hallelujah. Sure. I can imagine how David must have felt at that moment. I'm sure the thought through his mind, how did I end up here? I was minding my own business. And then Samuel shows up one day and pours oil on my head. and says, you're the one. And I serve faithfully. I slew the giant. I fought for Israel. Instead of being appreciated, I'm running for my life. Living in holes in the ground. And then this happens. What happened to the promise of God? What happened to the dream he gave to me? My destiny to lead and to rule. What's going on? Pause this just for a second and ask yourself, well, why did this happen? A lot of times people just say, well, you know, that's how God is. Sometimes just for fun, he just takes everything you have away and burns it to the ground. No, that's not true. That's not true. We have to, in this story, also consider the Elimelech factor. We have to consider the Elimelech factor. Did God send David to live in the land of the Philistines? No. That was a choice he made. Don't make life-changing decisions when you're frustrated. I said, don't make life-changing decisions because you're annoyed, you're frustrated, or you're, or, or you're emotionally wrought or confused. Get alone with God. Seek the wisdom of God. Are you out there today? In fact, David and his men, as I told you at one point, they were marching with the Philistines to attack the people of God. That's not God's will. That, don't tell me that's God's will. But see, those decisions open the door to the enemy. 
See, disobedience gives the enemy an advantage over us. I don't care if you are anointed. I don't care if you are called by God. If you're out of God's will, you're in a dangerous place. Are you listening to me? But after he strengthened himself in the Lord, verse 8 says this, and David inquired of the Lord. This is so important. First, he got himself spiritually charged up. Secondly, he turned his face to the wall and prayed like Hezekiah. Hallelujah. He, he didn't just shout out, God, do something. Help me, Lord. Come on, God, do something. He asked God a specific question. Shall I pursue the Amalekites? Shall I pursue these robbers? And God answered him with a specific answer. Go. Go. You see, many times we pray, there's a problem, something terrible has happened, and we just pray wanting God to do everything. Do it all, God. And while we just kind of sit on our blessed assurance, that's a wonderful song, but you know what I mean, they just lay back and just, you know, just think God's going to do everything. But usually in life, friends, listen to me, usually in life, do what you can do. And God will help you do what you can't. Shall I go? Shall I chase after them? And God said, do it. So he and his men were tracking this, this band of raiders. And God helped them. They ran into a fellow who was a slave of the Amalekites, who had been abandoned by them. And this man said, I'll show you where their camp is. I'll, if you spare my life, I'll take you right to the camp. So they said, deal. And he led them right into the enemy's camp. The favor of God will take you right into the enemy's camp so you can recover and take the devil stole from you. Can I get an amen today? Hallelujah. Hallelujah. They attacked. Verse 18 says, and David recovered all. All. Not one thing was lost. So even if you've made a mistake, even if you've used poor judgment, God's still on your side. He hasn't abandoned you. Even if you've lost something precious out of foolishness or sin, he'll help you get it back. He's merciful. How many of you found out that God is merciful? Can I get an amen here today? David recovered all. In that battle. And within a few days... David was installed as king, first over Judea, and a short time after that, over all of Israel. At Ziklag, it seemed like the darkest hour of his life. I'm sure it seemed like all hope is gone. But he didn't quit God because God didn't quit him. You see... The enemy knows that your breakthrough is just around the corner. The enemy knows that your healing is just within your grasp. The enemy knows that your miracle is just at hand. And so he's putting extra pressure on you now. Because if he can get you to quit, he can knock you at a place that you will not be there to receive the fulfillment of God's promises. So when the, when the enemy brings extra pressure to you through circumstances and through adversity, you put some extra pressure back on him. You stir 
stir yourself up. You begin to praise God. You turn your face to the wall. You seek God and you make up your mind, I'm gonna obey God no matter what. Hallelujah. Glory to God and you'll recover all. Hallelujah. May I say this? Don't base your faith on else's misfortune. Well, I had an aunt once and she loved God and it didn't work out for her. I don't know all the story about others in your life, loved ones and others, but I know about myself and you know about you. God can give you your breakthrough because he's a God of recovery. Let me say this to you in closing. I'm not trying to keep anybody down. I'm not trying to, my my message is not don't leave Nagaland. That's not exactly what I'm saying. We we know in other places, God did send people uh, out of Israel. Uh, When Herod wanted the baby Jesus, an angel appeared to Joseph and said, take Mary and, and, and your son, the baby Jesus, and go into Egypt. That was God's will. You see, I'm not telling you, you know, you have to stay here. Don't leave Nagaland or, or don't leave Dimapur or something like that. Uh, I, if God's, I'm saying if God sends you, go. But make sure you don't just go because you think it's a good idea. Because you may find yourself in the land of Moab. You may find yourself in Ziklag. And I, as a pastor, have seen that played out time and time again, where people seemingly let gold and got neither. Are you out there today? And when pe- I've had people say to me, Pastor John, can you help me get a visa to America? They're not thinking very hard. I've lived here for 30 years. Do you know how many times I felt like leaving? No offense to anybody here, even this morning. But you know what? <laughs> know what? If, if you got to be where God called you to be. Now, if this is not where God called you to be, then go find that place. But there is a place of blessing for you. There is a place of protection for you. There is a place of provision for you. And you got to be in that place. And I'm telling you, the safest place in the world is not America. God knows it's not America. And it's not even in the UK or Japan. Or It's in the perfect will of God for your life. We're not, when we're not in God's perfect will, things don't work perfectly. So where are the Ruths? I said, where are the Ruths who say, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to follow God's will for my life. I'm, I'm, I'm not letting go of God. Don't be like Lot. Stay with the blessing, the source of blessing in your life. Are you out there today? Again, I'm going to get in trouble for saying this, but some people came to this church and this ministry and there's, a, there's, an, there's grace here, there's an anointing here that came on them for being a part of here, serving here, working here, but they thought that anointing. And they left and found out, oop, no more oil. Again, if you go, it's because God sends you, not just because you think it's a good idea. I got a lot of good ideas but we need God ideas.